because it's a great chapter. It's one of the classic chapters in all the scripture, Matthew chapter 5. Tonight we begin our study on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do Matthew chapter 5 tonight and then we'll do Matthew chapter 6 and 7 next Sunday night. But before we get into it, would you join me uh, in prayer? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, the more we get into your word, the more we realize that your ways are best, the more we're able to conform our thinking to your thinking. Lord, that we can straighten our, our misconceptions, our presuppositions. We can realize where we're wrong, where we need to change, where we need to step in line with you. Lord, we thank you so much that your ways are not our ways. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word to show us, to teach us, to help us. Lord, you want us walking in the center of your will. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that you would use this Bible study to encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. There was once an old farmer who attended church every single Sunday. He said he always benefited from the service. He always enjoyed the sermon. And yet he told his friend, to tell you the truth, I've never heard a sermon that I didn't get something good out of it. Well, after thinking about it for a while, his buddy responded, Yeah, me too, but I've had some mighty close calls. I am sure that we've all had some mighty close calls. But the sermon that Jesus delivers here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are definitely not a close call. If sermons were pizzas, the Sermon on the Mount would be a pizza supreme. Walk into most first century Jewish synagogues and you would find a boring rabbi and a snoring congregation. The Jewish Talmud contains specimens of sermons taught by the rabbis. A.T. Robertson sums them up. They are the driest, dullest collection of disjointed comments on every conceivable problem in the history of mankind. These rabbinical sermons resembled frozen, cardboard-like pizzas, whereas the Sermon on the Mount had thick sauce and chewy crust and delicious toppings. It was a sermon supreme. For the folks sitting on that grassy knoll overlooking the Sea of Galilee, those who first heard Jesus' sermon, this was a sermon that they would never, ever forget. Jesus had been traveling the countryside preaching to the people that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And now he explains the nature of his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount could be called the Christian Manifesto. It is the very heart of Jesus' message. We'll begin in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. Whenever we visit Israel, we always stop at the traditional site of the Mount of Beatitudes. It's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a knoll that kind of rises up from the, the shore of the lake, overlooks the Sea of Galilee. This is where we believe that Jesus first spoke this sermon. As the hill slopes upward there along the shore, it wraps around a banana grove that sort of forms an outdoor amphitheater. You can stand on a ridge and you can be heard hundreds of feet away. The acoustics there are perfect for delivering a sermon to a large crowd. Jesus must have picked it out especially for this sermon. He says, And when he was seated with his disciples, 
Or when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Notice Jesus sits to teach. You know, today a speaker will usually stand when he begins to teach. But the rabbi in the synagogue would always sit. What you said while you were walking or while you were standing was considered informal and off the record. But when you took a seat, that's when you were making an official statement. Today, when a university's physics department creates a teaching position, it's known as the chair of physics. When Jesus sat down to teach, his disciples knew that he was about to conduct official business, issue a heavy statement. Now remember, Jesus came teaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus had brought heaven to earth. He had gone behind enemy lines and coming into this world to establish the kingdom of heaven among the kingdoms of men. But what were the values and the priorities of his kingdom? Jesus answers that question in this sermon. Jesus reveals the values of heaven. And he shows how they diametrically oppose to the traits prized on earth. In fact, the first eight Beatitudes stand out in contrast to the values of this world. Hey, the world admires haughtiness. Heaven admires humility. The world loves to laugh. Heaven listens to our mourning. The world is impressed with force. Heaven loves gentleness. The world is into what's here and now. Heaven hungers for what's spiritual and eternal. The world demands justice, but heaven shows mercy. The world assumes corruption, but heaven expects innocence and purity of heart. The world insists on its own rights. Heaven pursues peace. The world crushes its enemies. Heaven loves its enemies. Aren't you glad? Notice Jesus addresses the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. Verse 1, his disciples came to him. You see, this sermon is for Christians. For the only way to live the life of the kingdom is in relationship to the king. The Sermon on the Mount is not a New Testament law. It's not a moralistic code of behavior. Rather, it is the outgrowth or the byproduct of a life that has been connected to Jesus. One final point of introduction here. Notice the first eight statements we call the Beatitudes. They're the Beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. You see, at the heart of God's kingdom are attitudes, not actions. The Pharisees said, do, do, do. That was their emphasis. But Jesus said, be, be, be. Frank Sinatra said, do, be, do, be, do. But that doesn't really matter. What matters to God is not what you do, it's what you be. You see, the Pharisees, they did all the right things. But evil lurked in their heart. Whereas Jesus desires a righteousness that comes from the inside out. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. And yet after his conversion, he said of the self-righteousness of the Pharisaical life, the self-righteousness that he had manufactured before coming to Christ, he says, I count it but rubbish. And you know from past studies, that word rubbish literally means dung, manure. He says this emphasis on do, do, do. <laughs> well, it's just that. It's dung. It's rubbish. 
God knows that if you'll be the right person, you will do the right things. Well, verse 2 tells us, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed. The word literally means happy. People assume that happiness is the result of what I acquire, or the fame that what's acclaimed about me, or maybe the things that I accomplish. This is what makes happiness, but not so. Happiness is the result of the right attitude. You could also translate this word blessed not only as happy, but as congratulations. Jesus is saying, congratulations, if you have these different attitudes. It's proof that you belong to my kingdom. Well, in rapid-fire succession here, let's comment briefly on each of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, some folks are full of themselves, but the poor in spirit are just the opposite. They're the ones who look outside of themselves. They're the ones who have thrown themselves on the mercies of God. Jesus will bless their humility and their admitted neediness with the kingdom of heaven. What an irony here. In God's kingdom, the spiritual beggars end up the royal heirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus blesses the person who's willing to mourn, who knows when there is a time for tears. Guys, there is sin in us. There is sin around us, and our eyes can't stay dry when we really understand sin's consequences. Glibness is unbecoming of a Christian. The first step in fixing what's broken is realizing that it's broken. Jesus will comfort the person who stops pretending all is well and mourns over their brokenness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here's a great definition for meekness. And please don't confuse it with weakness. Meekness is strength, but under restraint. It's choosing to hold back when it's within your power to act. That's what meekness is. You see, a meek person is a person under control. He knows that it is better to win his opponent's respect than to win the game. He knows that souls are more important than the score. Once when Zach was a little guy, I think he was probably 10 or 11 years old, he was playing, we were playing baseball, I was coaching, he was playing shortstop, and a weak hitter was up. Kid had never got on base. He hit a ground ball Zach's way, and uncharacteristically, Zach scooped the ball up and he airmailed it over the first baseman's head. I was just about to jump on him. When he kind of leaned over to dugout and he kind of winked at me, and he sort of said, you know, in a whisper where only I could hear him, he said, Dad, I just wanted the kid to get on base for a change so he could feel good. That's meekness. And Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? That means that God trusts authority to people who have the right priority. That's what that means. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What's your driving passion? What yanks your chain? You see, life is full of stuff that creates a bloated feeling for a time. But that's why we call it stuff. It never slakes our spiritual thirst. It just stuffs us. It doesn't satisfy us. Jesus is the true thirst quencher. Jesus alone can satisfy the seeker. That's why we need to seek and knock and ask. Here's the question tonight. Do you hunger for God? Do 
you hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's been said, tell me what you seek, and I'll tell you what you are. Blessed are the merciful, so for they shall obtain mercy. Hey, apart from God's mercy, heaven is out of my reach. And that's why I need to be merciful. Can I deny you my forgiveness when God forgives me so freely? Can I? Jesus says the more mercy you show, the more mercy you'll know. That's why we need to bury the hatchet. We need to cut our brother or sister some slack. We need to show mercy today for tomorrow we might just need some. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, a cup of coffee can be too strong or it can be too weak, but I'll still drink it. It's a cup of coffee. But a fly in my cup disqualifies that cup of coffee. It makes it intolerable for me. Likewise, my love for God can at times be stronger, can at times be weaker. But it should always be pure. It should always be sincere. Hypocrisy is the fly in our cup. That's why Jesus desires the pure in heart. He desires genuine faith. And he tells us, only the pure in heart shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers like to fight. Peacemakers confront hostility, and they assault misunderstanding, and they attack problems with peaceful solutions. Peacemakers War for peace. A peacemaker tries to destroy his enemy by turning him into his friend. That's what a peacemaker is all about. And never are we more like God than when we fight for peace. This is why in verse 9, Jesus calls the peacemakers sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Usually when you take a stand for what's right, those who are in the wrong will take a shot at you. Persecution follows the Christian. It followed Jesus, and it'll follow you. But just remember, folks, the world calls chumps. God calls champs. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you stand up for Jesus, those who oppose him will try to bring you down. Don't be surprised when it happens. How often we, we're bummed out. We come, oh, I can't believe it. I'm standing up for Jesus and being persecuted. Why can't you believe it? They persecuted Jesus. They're going to persecute you. Don't be surprised when it happens. Rather, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Be excited when you get persecuted, for great is your reward in heaven. Hey, we get medals in heaven. We get scars on earth. Now remember, these beatitudes, we call them the believer's birthmark. The Spirit plants them in our hearts at the point of our conversion. The new birth comes with these beatitudes, and then as we grow in Christ, we develop them and we nurture them in our lives. 
In the preamble of the United States Constitution, our founding fathers guaranteed us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you know, those founding fathers were wise old goats. Because they knew they couldn't guarantee happiness, only the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) You know, a lot of people are searching for happiness. But here's the deal. Make happiness your goal, and that is the best way to end up unhappy. Happiness is never the result of a direct pursuit. Always remember, real happiness is the byproduct of living life God's way. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You know, salt served four primary functions. It was a preservative. It kept the meat fresh. It was a seasoning. I mean, what's a bowl of grits without a little salt? It's a thirst producer. Eat a bag of potato chips and you're dying for a Coke. And it was an antiseptic. It was a means of cleaning out a wound. And this is the influence that we should have on the world around us. Our presence should be like a preservative. It should arrest and slow down the corruption going on around us. Our joy should add spice to the blandness and boredom of this world. We are the salt on the grits. Our winsome witness should create a thirst for God in the people that we know. And the love that we show others should help to heal open wounds of the people around us. We're salt. But we're also light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Light's primary function is twofold. First, it drives out the darkness. Light exposes misconceptions and dangers and erroneous thinking. Light reveals the truth. And second, light gives off a warmth. It cures the world's coldness. As a man said of his Christian friend, I felt more alive when I was around them. Do, do the people that you know, are your friends, the people in your life, do they say the same thing about you? I felt more alive when I was around her, when I was around him. This is the kind of invigorating influence that we should have on the folks that we know. Hey, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Jesus continues, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, what good is a light if it's kept under a basket? What's good good is a light if it's buried under a candle? You hang the light in the center of the room so everyone can enjoy its benefit. Notice here, Jesus calls us the light of the world, not the light of the church that means that we need to get out of the church and we need to be involved in the world around us we need to let our light shine that's why you need to coach little league and you need to get involved in the pta or the community association or the bowling league don't retreat from the world jesus says you are the light of the world but if the people are going to see your light you have to be around them you have to be a part of them. 
engage the world around you with a deliberate attempt of being a witness for Jesus Christ. I encourage you to do that. You know, there are two reasons why most believers refuse to tr- most unbelievers refuse to trust in Jesus. Two reasons why people are non-Christians. First, they've never met a Christian and been exposed to this light and this love, the salt of the earth. There's another reason, though, they're not Christians. It's because they have met a Christian. And that Christian was not what he said he was. Hey, we all have an influence. With some of us, it's positive. With others of us, it's negative. Guys, let's be salt and light. Our job as Christians is to sprinkle and twinkle. Can you say that with me? We're to sprinkle and twinkle. Remember that this week. In verse 17, Jesus makes an important statement. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The intent of the law was to show us how to love God and how to love each other. And yet in the first century, the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, they kept the law out of duty, not love. Their righteousness was a loveless, legalistic kind of self-righteousness. In contrast, Jesus obeyed the law's intent. He fulfilled the law with love. You see, here's the problem with the law. It tells me to do loving deeds, but it fails to impart love into my life. Whereas Jesus fills me with His love so that I can then act in loving ways. I like this point. To work and run the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, then gives me wings. Jesus fulfilled the law by imparting His love into our hearts. He provides a means to live the love that the law required. Now, there were rabbis who believed that the Messiah, when he came, would do away with the law and establish a new standard of righteousness. But Jesus respected the law that was given to Moses. The law had lofty goals. The law was all about love. And Jesus wanted to fulfill those goals by empowering folks to love. This is why Jesus reiterates his respect for the law in verse 18. He says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle was the smallest stroke on the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The authority and the longevity of the five books of Moses, as well as all the Bible for that matter, is more certain than the sun coming up tomorrow. Jesus said the earth would sooner pass away than this book proved to be unreliable. This book is powerful. This book, its longevity, its authority, is trustworthy. Jesus respected the law. We should too. In essence, Jesus is saying, don't you dare fiddle with the tittle. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't do away with the law. Rather, he said that the true life lived out according to the law is going to produce a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. That's, that's what I want to accomplish in your life. Now, in the minds of the disciples who first heard this statement, I'm telling you, this was staggering. This was shocking. For in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were renowned for their diligence in keeping the law. As a matter of fact, the Jews had a saying at the time, went like this, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. I mean, the Pharisees were zealous in their efforts to observe the law. They were meticulous to obey the smallest little details. For example, the law said no work on the Sabbath day. But what constitutes work? Well, certainly carrying a load would be work. But what constitutes a load? Well, here's how the Pharisees defined a load. Food, the weight of a fig. Wine for a goblet. Milk for one swallow. Honey for a wound. Oil to anoint a small part of the body. Water to moisten an eye patch. Paper to write a note. And ink enough to write two letters. That was a load. So if you went out with a big mouthful of milk, you were carrying a load in violating the Sabbath requirements. According to the Pharisees, a tailor sinned if he walked outside of his house with a pin stuck in his coat. He was carrying a load. It was a sin to lift your young child to your knee and bounce him on your knee on the Sabbath day. You were doing work and therefore sinning. It was a sin to wear your false teeth on the Sabbath day. You were carrying a load. Or attach your artificial leg to your nub. Again, you were carrying a load. Jesus would have agreed, don't work on the Sabbath. But what's more loving? Bouncing a child on your knee or making him play over in the corner by himself? You see, the Pharisees had missed the point. Rabbinical righteousness was strict observance of laws, an outward form of righteousness. But Jesus taught love. And in doing so, he fulfilled the law. Jesus said, love, and you'll take care of the law. You don't have to worry about the law if you love. You fulfill it. Jesus displayed an inward righteousness that comes from a heart. A righteousness that in his mind was greater than that of the Pharisees. As Christians, Jesus has freed us from the legalism of the law. But he has not freed us from love. Jesus puts love inside us, and he expects us to live out that love in our relationships with others. His righteousness comes from the inside out. Well, in the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus contrasts his righteousness with the righteousness of the Pharisees. In other words, the difference between love and legalism. The Pharisees boasted that they had never murdered anyone. But in verse 21, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, in other words, the Pharisees believe this. But now I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now I want you to note up front, not all anger is sin. 
There there are causes that justify our anger. Jesus got angry. You remember? When, When the Pharisees wanted to judge him, when he healed the man with the withered hand, it says Jesus looked at the people in the room with anger. Jesus got angry. But whenever Jesus got angry, he got angry for the right reason, at the right time, and in the right way. Here Jesus is pointing to the outward righteousness of the Pharisees. They bragged that they had never murdered anyone. But oh my, the unjustified anger smoldering in their hearts was the spiritual equivalent of cold-blooded murder. Jesus is saying, don't be proud that you haven't done the deed when the seed is in your heart. So you've never pulled the trigger. So there are no powder burns or metal filings on your hands. But in your anger, have you blown up your wife and kids? If every angry outburst killed someone, would your morning drive to work end up being a killing spree? Reminds me of the man who was bitten by a dog. That pit bull I showed you this morning. And the doctor started taking tests. And he comes in and he tells the guy, he says, man, I hate to say this, but you've got rabies. Immediately, the guy reaches over and he grabs a piece of paper and a pen off of the doctor's desk and he starts writing. The doctor looks at him and he says, whoa, wait a minute now. You don't need to write a will. You're not going to die. I mean, this is modern times. We've got medicines today that will treat rabies. The man answers, he says, oh. He says, I'm not writing a will. I'm just dotting down the names of the people I want to bite. Hey, anger is a sin if it's unjustified and if it's left smoldering in our hearts. Jesus is saying anger, not just murder, is a sin. Jesus goes on to describe the escalating forms of anger. He says, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You see, anger is like gasoline. You know, when you go up to the pumps, you get a choice. There are different octane levels, different grades of gasoline. And there are different octane levels of anger. First, there's a suppressed anger, or what Jesus calls anger without a cause. This is the illicit anger that we hold on to, that we nurture, that we sort of just let smolder below the surface. Sometimes it doesn't even have an object. We're just angry. Things aren't going our way. Then there's what we could call an explosive anger. It's the anger that lashes out, that shouts, Raka. The word Raka was an Aramaic slang word for empty-headed. You idiot. It was an insult. And then... There's premeditated anger. You fool. This was more than a simple insult. It was a calculated, deliberate attempt to be vengeful. In other words, when you called somebody a fool, it was character assassination. Verse 23. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and here is the first step in dealing with anger. Be in the habit of coming to the altar. Are you in the habit? Of coming to the altar every day, every morning before you leave, every night before you go to bed. Are you in the habit of worshiping God at the altar? Guys, His presence 
has a way of diffusing and disarming our anger, of changing our hearts. How can we be angry when we are spending time in the presence of a God who loves us and adores us and died to save us? And while you're at the altar, Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you. In in other words, if God brings an issue to your mind, if God brings it up, if it's an unresolved, if while you're at the altar in God's presence, suddenly you think of some unresolved conflict with someone and God brings it to your attention, then leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. In other words, it's a mockery to seek harmony with God while you're ignoring the rift you have with a friend. He says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Guys, life is too short to spend it angry and mad or to have someone mad at you. That's why we need to pick up the phone or we need to sit down and write a letter. That's why we need to apologize for our part in the drama and we need to do it today. For Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly. In other words, keep short accounts. Paul says it this way, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. You know, before you end the day, settle these accounts. If if you know of a rift between you and someone else, go to that person and end it. Settle it. Apologize when it's your part, when you have a part in the problem. Life is too short to spend it angry. There's a Latin proverb, he who goes to bed angry has the devil for a bedfellow. Here's the point. Deal with your anger before God deals with you. For he says, agree with your adversary while you are on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. And the judge hands you over to the officer. And you are thrown into prison. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Guys, unresolved anger becomes a prison in more ways than one. Deal with your anger or it will destroy you one penny at a time. Jesus also warns us in chapter 5 verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Every guy in this room tonight knows that it's one thing to just look. You see a pretty girl, you say, yeah, Lord, that's a pretty girl. And then you move on. But it's another thing to look to lust. It's the lingering look. It's when imagination takes over the image you've placed in your mind. It's so true. Promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. Certainly the consequences of the deed and the seed are different. I mean, you go out and you you kill someone, it gets you the electric chair. You know, you go out and commit adultery, you get a venereal disease. Or you break up your family. There's a difference between the aftermath of the deed and the seed. I mean, no other human being may know about the seed of sin in your heart. But in God's eyes, and this is what we need to understand, Jesus is saying, in God's eyes... The seed and the deed are one and the same. They're the same sin, just at a different stage of development. 
This is why true righteousness begins in the heart. Guys, love overcomes anger. Love overcomes lust. When I love my enemy, I'll treat him as my friend. When I love people, I won't look selfishly at a pretty girl as a means for my own personal gratification. Rather, I'll see her as a person who belongs to God and I'll honor her in that way. Jesus tells us the way to deal with our anger and our lust is to take radical action. Stop with the business as usual. If you know there's a hostility brewing, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. The same with lust. For a lustful heart also calls for drastic action. Notice verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. As I mentioned this morning, Jesus didn't intend here to be taken literally. I can lust with my right eye. If I can lust with my right eye, I can also lust with my left eye. So what good's it going to do for me to pluck out my right eye if my left one can do just as much damage? You know, it's tragic when disturbed folks have used these words to harm themselves. And it happened again just recently. On January the 8th of this year, a young man, 20 years old, living in northern Idaho. I read about it in the, in the uh, newspaper recently. He cut off his hand with a circular saw because he believed it held the mark of the beast. The news report said that he then cooked it in the microwave and then called 911. But he he referred back to these words. He had misused these words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus doesn't mean to be taken literally here. He's using a literary device. He's using a, a, a tool of literature. We call it hyperbole. It's an exaggeration for emphasis. When he says pluck out an eye or cut off a hand, Jesus means take drastic action to get root of the problem. To do whatever it takes not to sin again. That's what he's saying. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And again, as we said this morning, if if we were going to take it literally and pluck out an eye, there's no way any of us would have nerve enough to do it ourselves. It would require a doctor's assistance. There are some struggles with sin that require outside help, accountability, support, counseling when needed. There are some struggles with sin you can't fight on your own, and this is one of them. If you're involved in some kind of addictive behavior, you need to seek some help. And I'm excited about the support group that's getting started. Bill's going to be uh, doing for us here, again, the first night, February 22nd, Friday night. If you're interested, see Bill. He'll give you more details. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Again, what is the source of my problem? What is the cause of my sin? For some of us, chopping off a hand might be the equivalent of canceling our cable subscription or restricting our internet access or breaking off contacts with certain people who have a bad influence on us or even changing my schedule or the route that I drive home from work. Victory requires an uncompromising mindset. He says, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish 
than for your whole body to be cast into hell. In verse 31, Jesus discusses divorce. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Remember, Moses allowed for divorce, but it was never God's desire. It was a concession to man's hard-heartedness. Moses basically said if the choice is killing each other or getting a divorce, well, go ahead and get divorced, but that's not God's intention. Here Jesus sets the record straight. You know, because the Jews, in in understanding Moses' commandment, the Jews had taken it the wrong way. They said, well, wait a minute. If, If Moses allows for divorce, that must mean that God approves of it. Not so. It was a concession, not a commandment. And here Jesus sets the record straight. But I say to you, That whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. But I want you to notice the exception. In the case of sexual infidelity, the violated spouse is under no obligation to take back the adulterer and remain in the marriage. In the event of sexual immorality, the violated spouse is free to move on. You see, in the Old Testament, an adulterer was taken out and stoned. That made the offended spouse a widow or a widower and thus free to remarry. In the New Testament, Jesus allows the sinned against spouse the same freedom while providing hope for the guilty. Whenever I think of divorce, I think of a comment that was made once by Sylvester Stallone. You know, Rocky. Sylvester Stallone of Rocky fame, you know who I'm talking about? He made this comment. He says, boxing is great exercise as long as you can yell cut whenever you want. (laughs) That's true. But this is how the Jews in Jesus' day treated marriage. They concocted all kinds of loopholes. In marriage, you can't just yell cut anytime you want. You're committed. You make a commitment for life. And Jesus is saying that His love will stick it out. His love will find a way to work it out. That His love will remain in the marriage and be faithful to the marriage. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. To ensure honesty, the Pharisees had developed a system of oaths. Swearing by a third party reinforced the commitment that you had made, the promise that you had made. The more prominent the third party, the more serious you were about keeping your word. So that if you swore by God's throne, you were basically asking God to hold you accountable. That meant that you had to be pretty serious about your promise. Swear by your own head, just your own head. I mean, that that could mean that you may or may not keep your promise, you know, that kind of a thing. Rather than promote honesty, all these oaths were doing were providing a reason to cover up hypocrisy. That's what was going on. 
Jesus thought this whole idea of oaths was silly and deceptive. Why swear at all? I mean, why take an oath? Why not just be a man or woman of your word in the first place? When you say something, why not do it? Mean what you say and say what you mean. Verse 37, this is what Jesus says. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus said, out with this system of oaths. It's ridiculous. Be a person who keeps your word. When you say something, make sure that people can count on what you've said. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now understand, the human tendency is not eye for an eye. For if you take out one of my eyes, I'm going to try to take out both of your eyes. The human tendency is one-upmanship. It's back at you, but a little harder than you hit me. Watch my boys fight. Oh, wait a minute, Nick. You hit me on my arm. Let me hit you on your arm. That's not how it works. You hit me on the arm. Come here a minute. He's kicking his knees and his shins, and they're going at it, and and they're trying to one-up each other. That's the human tendency. It's not eye for an eye. It's you take my eye. I'm going to take both your eyes. Jesus says love goes in the opposite direction. It shows mercy rather than demands justice. When we're attacked, we initiate, we respond, but we just respond in love. We retaliate, but we retaliate in love. Now let me make three important points in reference to these verses. First, Jesus is not stripping governments of their right to wage war and to defend their citizens. His sermon, Sermon on the Mount, is for individual believers, not governments. These were for his disciples. Second, Jesus isn't stripping you of your right to self-defense. Notice he says specifically, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, statistics show that 90% of the population is right-handed. How many people are right-handed tonight? Raise your hand. How many left-handers do we have? Probably about 90% of you are right-handed. So how does a right-hander hit you on the right cheek? Well, well, there's only one way that that if I'm right-handed, I can hit you on the right cheek, and that's with the back of my hand. And in every culture, the backhanded slap was not a physical attack. It wasn't a violent attack. It was considered an insult. Jesus is saying here that if you're insulted, you need to slough it off. You need to turn the other cheek. But if someone threatens you physically, violently, it's your responsibility to defend yourself. If a guy breaks into your house to harm your family, then blow him away with your shotgun. And the third thing here that these verses don't do is Jesus is not suggesting that we become doormats. I mean, turning the other cheek is not allowing someone to repeatedly use you and abuse you. Sometimes we love someone by standing up to them. 
And sometimes we're not doing them any good, showing them any love by letting them walk all over us. Here's what Jesus is saying in this verse and at the end of chapter 5. He's saying that my priority for people, I'm sorry, that my priority needs to be a love for people, not a demand for my own rights. I'm going to say that again. Because this will help you understand what's going on here at the end of chapter 5. He's saying, my priority needs to be a love for people, not a a demand for my own rights. Here's the challenging question that Jesus is asking us in these verses. Am I willing to give up my rights in order to show you love? My right to dignity. Slap me on the cheek, and though you insult me, I don't care. I'm not going to stop loving you. My right to possessions. Take my cloak. Your soul means more to me than my shirt. My right to liberty. I'll walk that second mile. Your salvation is more important to me than my convenience. A second mile is a further opportunity for me to be a witness to you. My right to security. I'll be generous. I would rather you survive than for me to thrive. Notice first here, my right to dignity demands. My right to dignity demands that you treat me with respect. But Jesus says, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. In other words, don't let walls go up just because you're insulted. Isn't that what happens though? Whenever we're insulted, what happens? A wall goes up. I'm done with him. Nobody's going to treat me that way. Nobody's going to talk to me that way. Whenever we're insulted, a wall goes up. Jesus is saying, don't do that. You're cutting yourself off from people, the people who need you. Jesus is saying, don't erect that wall. Rise above it. Love is stronger than an insult. Just because you insult me doesn't mean I'm going to stop loving you. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to continue to love you. Jesus challenges my right to possessions in verse 40. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Jewish men in the first century, they basically wore two garments. There was an inner tunic, which sort of served as the shirt, and then there was a heavier outer cloak, which doubled as a jacket, sometimes even a bedroll. In verse 40, Jesus isn't abolishing personal property rights in society. He's just saying to Christians, don't put possessions before people. Our job isn't to die with a stocked wardrobe. It's to take as many people as we can to heaven. And if giving away a tunic or two can save a soul, then do it. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Under Roman rule, a soldier had the right to recruit a civilian to carry his armor. And this became a great inconvenience to the Jews. I mean, you're running late for work. You're going out to get in your car, and a Roman soldier walks by. And, hey, buddy, I need you to carry my armor. Oh, my, you've got to be kidding. You are obligated to carry his stuff. For up to one million, which was the Roman mile. A million was a little shorter than our mile. But this inconvenience irritated the Jews. And, and, and they would take that, that armor and they would just count every step. 
And when they reached 5,280 feet, they dumped it in a pile and stomped off mad. Jesus is saying, a soldier's salvation is more important than our inconvenience. Go ahead and carry his stuff a second mile. While you got his stuff, he's got to listen to you. Tell him about God's love. Be a witness to him. Love is more concerned with his salvation than your convenience. And understand, Jesus is not just talking about how we treat our friends. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the Old Testament didn't say that. Nowhere in the Old Testament did it say to hate our enemies. The rabbis were the ones who had taught hate your enemies. Now, there were times in the Old Testament when Israel defeated their enemy in battle. But it was never a matter of hate. It was a matter of justice and righteousness. Jesus here counters the rabbis who said, hate your enemy. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Abraham Lincoln used to say, the only way to destroy an enemy is to turn him into a friend. This needs to be our attitude. There was a small town down in Mexico that held a passion play year after year. It was a very dramatic, lifelike event. One year, the lead actor who was scheduled to play Jesus got sick just before the performance. A replacement was needed. But the only man available who wasn't already participating in the play was an unsavory character. Sort of a bully, kind of the town tough guy. Really a rough guy. They recruited him to play Jesus. They needed him. It was, he was the only one available. Well, as he was carrying the cross to the outskirts of the town, his other townspeople, they were, you know, they were acting as the Roman soldiers, and they started hitting him. They started spitting on him. They started cursing him. Well, it was about more than the old boy could take. And as they were lifting him up onto the cross, he turned to one of the guys playing the Roman soldier, and he whispered to him under his breath, You better run, because after the resurrection, I'm going to get you. You know, Jesus could have had the same attitude. He could have. He could have said, hey, he could have said from the cross, hey, I'm going to rise from the dead and you guys are in trouble once I do. But he didn't. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus died to save the very people that were persecuting him and crucifying him. In a sense, this is our greatest opportunity to be like Jesus. When we love our enemies. And yet you and I both know. <laughs> the point where we have the potential to, to be like Jesus is also our greatest failure. For this is where no one can obey the Sermon on the Mount in their own strength. Love my enemies. Come on, you got to be kidding. But here's what we learn. What God asks us to do. He also enables us to do. Remember, the righteousness of Jesus is greater than that of the Pharisees. It comes from the inside out. 
It comes as a result of His love flowing into us and through us to others. It's not us, it's Him. Jesus says, love your enemies that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, the world is full of common grace. And God provides opportunities for everyone. Even your enemies are not beyond the reach of God's grace. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. In other words, it's easy to love a person who loves you. That's easy. But the mark of being God's child is a love for the unlovable. The love for a love for the people who hate you. That's the mark of God's love. C.S. Lewis once said this. Do not waste time bothering about whether you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. For as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you've got an enemy, don't worry about really loving. Just act like you love them. And you know what? The Holy Spirit will rise up in you and He'll give you a supernatural love. He'll give you God's love. And you will live out a righteousness even greater than that of the Pharisees. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wait a minute. What do you mean, Jesus? Be perfect. We can't possibly be perfect. We can't be on our own. But it's only when the Holy Spirit loves through us that His perfection is seen in our lives. So, my friends, go out tonight with the love of God, filling your heart, filling your life. Let it spill over into your relationships at home in your relationships at work, in your relationships in the neighborhood, and even let it spill over to a few of those enemies of yours. Love them with the love of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this incredible sermon. We pray, Lord, that we would understand it, that we would hide its truths in our heart, and that we would be busy living out these truths, Lord. Help us to have this kind of righteousness, a righteousness that flows from your love, that flows from the inside out. Lord, we love you. Help us to be light, lights of the world. Help us to be salt of the earth. Lord, help us to go out this week and sprinkle and twinkle. In Jesus' name, amen.